So actually tonight is the sequel to the talk I gave last week, which you probably don't remember it. So I'll just remind you what it was. Um, I spoke about Sila, about how we can use the, how we can understand the mindfulness trainings or precepts from a more metaphorical or contemplative perspective. And I spoke about the second one, not stealing, and the fourth one, being honest or truthful. And tonight, I'd like to speak about the first, third, and fifth, if I can get through that many. But I'm going to start with the fifth one, and then the third one, then the first one. And the fifth one is the one about um, not abusing drugs and alcohol, about not using intoxicants to induce physical or mental imbalance. The third one is about uh, sexual misconduct. And the first one is about not taking life. And then, of course, I reframe them in a more positive way. But at this time in the retreat, I think a lot of very deep sankharas, deep patterns, formations, are arising for many of you. And actually, I feel my own, too. It's uh, the field of practice that we are in together. And uh, it's so powerful. And this is a very deep, deep time in the retreat. Actually, this next week, the very deepest time. So to begin to see this, the conditioned nature of things and how all the clinging or any appropriation of experience as mine, as a story about my worthiness or unworthiness, fuels so much more misperception and so much more suffering. And to face this and to surrender to the process of seeing clearly, of the seeing which moves either mental moves or what we do with our actions bring well-being and clarity and, and freedom. Uh, anyway, this is what I want to talk about. So these precepts or um, trainings, they are really the expression of the inner purification of heart and mind, of character that is happening here and the integrity of heart from which all action springs. I mean, they're really not a bunch of rules. They help us keep a clear mind and keep the mind free of entanglement, but they're really more an expression of loving awareness at heart. And so as I begin with this last one, I'll tell you a story. It's a story about Maizumi Roshi, who founded the Zen Center of Los Angeles, a Japanese Zen teacher, and he was giving a talk very much like this, a Dharma talk, and at, you know, for his community. And there was, in the group, 
a man who was really drunk, very intoxicated. And during the time for questions after the talk, he came forward and he was you know, kind of defiant and he said, so Roshi, what's it like to be enlightened? And, you know, he's like, uh, what's it? But it was a good question. It was just the way he asked was sort of slurry and um, blurry. And, and it, was, uh, it was just a moment. And, and Maizumi Roshi looked at him very tenderly and said, very depressing. What do you think he meant by being enlightened was very depressing? What do you think he meant when he looked at that man? I mean, you can guess, there's not a quiz. Do you have any idea what he was pointing to? Yeah. He was reflecting what he was seeing. Exactly. He was just mirroring what he was seeing and his sadness at that. Um, So, the training or the precept is, is a, it's about alcohol. The Buddha spoke about alcohol because I don't think there was such prevalent drug addiction in those days. And if there had been, he would certainly have been unequivocally um, not for that. And he, he said, don't allow alcohol to cause physical or mental imbalance. And, and it's also an invitation for us to look at how we might use substances or abuse substances or use substances to oppress or abuse ourselves. And it could be food. I mean, it really could be anything, I suppose. But uh, there's a meal verse in the Zen tradition that asks us to, along with appreciating our food, there's a phrase that says, to know how it comes to us, the work of many hands, the offering of many forms of life. And with that invitation to reflect on how it comes to us, of course that brings some compassion, but it also highlights how are we relating to it. Throughout the world we find myths and fairy tales and legends and um, of this journey and and a lot of images of the desperate longing to awaken from the imprisonment of various forms of addiction, whatever form it may take. And in all cultures, there are initiations, there are steps to take, uh, paths to follow, voices of um, both wisdom and compassion, of the tests and challenges we may meet and the courage we may need. and at the heart of each of these stories is the surrendered sincerity of the seeker of each one of us who has to honestly admit how it is for us and how we can bear how it is for us. 
without trying to take the edge off, uh, but to build tolerance through our practice for the uncertainty that Winnie was talking about. And um, given how relatively small our knowledge of the universe is and how vast the unknown, um, this is pretty important. So in the spirit of those who've been sharing quite personally, I had written this talk quite impersonally, and then I thought, well, I'm just going to go for it. Uh, Alcoholism is a kind of systemic, sort of a family autoimmune disease, and I lived for quite a few years in, um, in such a family, as an adult, and even as a Dharma teacher and a psychotherapist, I participated in events that I couldn't ever have imagined coming from my particular family of origin, where I was blessed with a pretty, pretty happy childhood and um, a safe and pretty happy childhood. Uh, to put it bluntly, I lived with a lot of insanity And this was probably about mm, 20 years ago now. And I was so busy trying to manage it that I actually couldn't see it. And this was in the midst of lots of sitting. And um, I mean, I'm smiling just because it's so hard to believe now, but it wasn't funny. It was actually terrifying and very sad to watch somebody that I loved with all my heart uh, descend into hell. And I became, in a way that I didn't see so clearly at the time, just chronically frightened and anxious and obsessed. Um, There was a kind of frantic energy that was always there beneath the surface. And... And part of the insanity was the denial of how bad our situation actually had become. And that's the hallmark of uh, families like this. Misperception. Seeing something as okay, or kind of okay, that simply isn't. Um, A persistent, wise friend dragged me to my first Al-Anon meeting, It was in western Massachusetts, two hours, over two hours away from where I lived. I refused to go to any meeting near where I lived um, because I wanted to protect my loved one. And, And afterwards I thanked the nice man who led the newcomers meeting. I thanked him politely and I told him that I just didn't belong there because... I was, after all, I was only worried that my loved one was going to go to jail because he was still driving drunk after receiving a DUI. So, thank you. But I didn't belong there. And to his everlasting credit, the nice man said nothing. And he just stood there. I think he was waiting for me to hear what I had said. Which I did. I heard it. And I couldn't believe it, that I had said that. So, um, 
you know, I was choosing to keep something outside of awareness that felt too hard to bear. And in those rooms, I was able to begin to recover my sanity and strength and clarity one day at a time. And powerless to influence the course of uh, addiction, except I could do something about my own. I steadied myself with the equanimity phrases, with intensive, you know, weeks and weeks of retreat and metta practice. And, and the metta helped with the unbearable anxiety I was experiencing with the progressive loss of my loved one's care and attention. And, and equanimity helped gentle the intense self-reproach. It's amazing how one can experience such a lacerating kind of guilt for not being able to help. Um, so the elements that served my recovery were my long verified faith in the three refuges, in Buddhist practice as a way to end suffering and find peace. And I saw that what the Buddha said was true, that it's on the very ground of suffering that we can find love and peace, that it's exactly in the muddy water that the lotus grows and rises and blooms beautiful and free, as Pascal was saying this morning. So it's important for us to look at the way we may use substances to soothe, to numb, to console, to love. There's a Zen saying, don't drink the wine of delusion. Don't intoxicate the mind into believing that pleasantness lies in the object, right? In the drink, in the high. Uh, Don't drink the wine of delusion. Now, to reframe it from the more um, positive statement, it would be, I vow to take in, and this is adapted from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, I vow to take in and consume that which nourishes peace, well-being, and joy for myself and my world. And during the course of retreat, many things become clear. The result of what kind of nourishment we are consuming each day, each moment, it's keenly felt from what it's like to sit in the afternoon after overeating at lunch, to the growing sense of clarity and commitment to the Dharma during this luxuriously long period of dedicated practice. And when there's no remorse or regret in the mind, it just fills with a sense of joy and lightness. So we nourish ourselves with the practice here feeling the beauty of the earth and the presence of our own being. And this is spiritual sobriety, not intoxication. The wisdom of receiving the moment just as it is, drinking it in straight up. 
And this kind of sobriety allows us to feel fully life in all the details, not numbing or shutting down or uh, living in denial as I was at that time, but allowing a larger experience to flow through us, which is really peaceful and joyful. Life then reveals itself to our attentive presence, to our loving awareness. And part of this, uh, this fifth uh, training about nourishing ourselves with you know, that which is good and not taking in that which brings uh, mental or physical imbalance is honesty. It's the honesty of mindfulness that I talked about the first night. Um, And in Honolulu with Jack, he talked about how we had the honor to meet Aung San Suu Kyi, the Burmese democracy leader. And, you know, she was invited as part of a program called Pillars for Peace. We actually had these name tags on. And when she saw Jack's name tag, she said, oh, he's here, isn't he? Yeah. She said, oh, Jack Cornfield. I think we might have some friends in common. It was very sweet. Um, And so she's learned to meditate. And during her long years of house arrest, she practiced a lot of metta. And in this, um, this event, she was speaking to the high school students and they called her Da Su in Hawaiian, that would be Auntie Sue. And, uh, and her speech was like a Dharma talk. And she was talking about the qualities that she felt they would most need, that would be most important for their lives. It was very moving to see her. She was in house arrest, three different segments for 16 years. And... Um, And without going into the whole history of that, let's just say that she received an upbringing that was extremely empowering for her as a girl. And um, and even in prison, her party won elections, which of course lengthened her imprisonment, made her more dangerous to the generals. And as Jack was explaining, she did have um, a couple of times an opportunity to leave and go rejoin her family. But she chose to stay. She held her power seat. And I just have to say that for me as a woman, to see her, she was so strong and so confident and so pretty. She's really beautiful. And she puts all these flowers, she puts her hair up with all these flowers. She had very high, um, dark red patent leather heels and this you know, gorgeous silk Burmese dress. And she walks in this kind of swishing way. And she bats her eyes and, <laughs> and she's so 
tough and strong. <laughs> and the combination of, you know, so pretty and so feminine and so strong and solid and powerful uh, was particularly, it was just to see the combination of softness and power was very inspiring. Um, but what she talked about that I wanted to share with you this evening, it has to do with the story I was telling before, was the importance of listening. She only had a radio. She didn't have any television. And because she didn't have any videos or um, anything to watch, she would listen to the radio. And she said with the radio, she really, since she could only listen to people's voices, Uh, the generals and the people who would be speaking on the radio, she said she really learned to hear and she actually learned that she could hear so much more by listening than by looking at people and that she could hear in their voices so much about their character. And she said when you listen very carefully without seeing the face, you learn a lot more than face-to-face. More is revealed to you. She said, everybody has an agenda of his or hers. The difference is, some are honest about it and some are not. And she said she could hear it in their voices. And you know, there is a lot of information that is conveyed in a voice. Any of you who have ever done work over the telephone, you know this. And she talked about this honesty and how important a quality it is. She said, honesty requires courage and peace requires courage. Remember, she's invited to speak at a global peace forum. She said, because honesty and peace are very close together. To be at peace with yourself, you have to be honest with yourself. You have to know what you're like, know what your strengths and weaknesses are. These are the sankharas that are arising so deeply at this time in the retreat. We're all seeing this. And then you learn to live with yourself, to be at peace with yourself. When she was put in house arrest at first, she was frightened. And she just didn't know if she could do it. And the kids were so interested in the house arrest part. They asked her so many questions about that. And she said, house arrest was very peaceful. And after two days, I realized I could do it. And then she talked about the qualities that supported her being able to do it and how she could be with herself in that way. Now, I don't mean to imply that you are under house arrest, but there are some similarities to the situation that may not have escaped you. She said, I mean, you're free to go, but there's no TV. There's only our voices. Anyway, she said it was that quality of being willing to know who you are and not afraid to know who you are. That is what helped her. That courage allowed her to do it. And she said in the same way that we want 
peace um, among ourselves in the world, we have to learn about one another, about each other, including about ourselves. And, and that requires us to have the courage to face what we have to do as well as who we are and what we are. And she said, you have to have the courage to recognize the truth in others even if you don't agree with them. Quote, peace is not easy to achieve. Peace requires change, and change requires a lot of hard work. And hard work requires commitment and courage. Doesn't that sound like a Dharma talk? Winnie's going to be talking about wise effort. Um, But essentially, that's also what she was talking about. And she was just saying these are the qualities that you kids need to cultivate in your lives. And then later she spoke about the importance of compassion. She had so much time to reflect on it, way more than we do. And when she reflected on why people would be so cruel to each other, and remember many of her friends and colleagues were imprisoned and tortured because of their connection to her. And she had a lot to reflect about. She said she realized that, and this came from listening to some of the generals speak, to hearing the quality of their voices. She said she realized that in order to be cruel, one had to be, and I love this phrase, insufficiently touched by compassion. Insufficiently touched by compassion in your life. And therefore the importance of touching oneself to be honest and to see clearly, sure, to face what you need to do, to see who you are, all of that, but with compassion. Learn to listen without distortion. This is from Nisargadatta. Learn to listen without distortion. Realize that every mode of perception is subjective. That what is seen or heard or touched or smelled, felt or thought, expected or imagined, is in the mind's, I'm paraphrasing a little, in the mind's relationship to reality and not out there in reality. And this brings so much peace and freedom from fear. And there's a story that I remembered um, when I was listening to her that I want to share with you that I shared with my sangha in L.A. and... It's a story that was told by a blind man who was a student of the great 17th century Zen master named Banke. Now, Banke in his day went from being this completely poor nobody who um, 
his enlightenment and the way that he understood reality, uh, nobody actually understood what he was talking about when he experienced his illumination and his realization. And he was so deep. I don't think anybody could just really get it. But by the end of his life, Thousands of people were coming to hear him. So many people came to hear his Dharma talks that they had to do them in shifts. Like he would have to talk to several thousand and they'd leave and several thousand more would come and he'd give talk to them. And um, even 10,000 people would come to his monastery. Just They flocked to him. And this blind man said something that was very much like um, what Dao Su said. He said, since I'm blind, I can't watch a person's face. So I have to uh, judge their character by the sound of their voice. I mean, she wasn't blind, but she couldn't see the people. And he said, um, I don't know exactly the words he said in the 17th century, but what he was conveying was, he said, When people speak, I always hear some hidden agenda in what they say. Very much what she was saying, right? He said, for example, if somebody's being congratulated for something good that happened in their life, I hear people saying all the right words. Oh, how wonderful, congratulations, mazel tov. But I also hear, I guess he said, I also hear something behind it. Um, maybe they're envy, maybe they're not being entirely thrilled, maybe wishing it could have been them. He said, I hear something else. And the same thing when people are offering their condolences for somebody else's um, sorrow. He said, I can hear something behind it in their voice. Maybe relief that it happened to them, not to that person, I mean, and not to them maybe even a little bit of gladness. Sometimes we can even have a trace of pleasure in somebody else's unhappiness. Um, He would just hear that and he said, the only person that when they speak, I hear just what they're saying. The only person whose voice is always sincere that when they express gladness, all I hear is gladness. That when they express sorrow, all I hear is sorrow, is banke. I always remember that story and it's for some reason very, very touching to me. I think we can all relate to it because we have a kind of sonar, we have intuition for these things, we sense it. Uh, I was reading in Norman Fisher's new book, he said, "Uh, a dear friend of mine lost her husband who died suddenly with no warning. His death was a complete shock to her and her subsequent grief was so immense that she was all but inconsolable. She had many friends who kept trying to comfort her. Not only did their efforts leave her completely untouched, they actually made her angry her grief had given her a deadly accurate insincerity meter. So she felt people's fear and avoidance. 
much more than she felt the consolation that they were trying to offer her with their words and pats on the shoulder. To be compassionate, we really do need to be willing to feel the deep sorrow of another and not to distance ourselves saying, you know, they're there. And he goes on to say, most people want to be compassionate, but actually have no clue about what compassion really is. And that's why we're so lucky to have this chance to sit with ourselves. And especially when we sit a lot, it just becomes unavoidable to see, um, well, let's just say our shortcomings. Banke said, this is one of a quote from him, not angry when abused, not happy when praised. I'm a great blockhead of the universe. Going along as circumstances carry me, north, south, east, west, without hiding my ugliness and clumsiness between heaven and earth. That's so free, right? Our clumsiness, our ugliness, we're always trying to hide it. And he's just saying, you know, it's okay, I'm not hiding it. And along with our gifts, our strengths, our talents, and our beautiful qualities of the heart, we see all this and it just tenderizes the heart. Because when we keep practicing and sitting like this and being with ourselves, sitting, walking, eating, resting, just existing in loving awareness like this, it's all suffused with compassion. But it's the compassion of just not being separate. Um, I mean, we think of compassion as doing good, but that's not what compassion really is. Doing good is doing good. And compassion is quite different. Uh, As Jack was saying, it just functions very freely with no sense of separation. And um, it just happens the way you, I don't know, grow your hair or the way you um, reach for your pillow in the night. Uh, if someone falls, you pick them up. It's just a very intimate, um, no separation, that kind of wisdom that comes out of um, not thinking about it, right? It's just the realization of no separation. And compassion is the activity that comes out of this realization of no separation. As Jack said, the baby cries and the bear has milk. So Banke was really beloved and he embraced everybody Um, There's a great book about him called The Unborn because in his teaching he would say to everybody, and this comes back to what Pascal was teaching this morning, he would say, don't be born. And what do you think he meant by that when he would say, don't be born? Or like the Metasutta, right? Never born again into this world. What did he mean by that? Well, you know, because we talked about it this morning, right? Not being born into 
the appropriation of an identity. And when I talk about the first training, I really will talk about the need to cherish all of the identities, not to just like fixate on one or think we aren't supposed to have any. So that's what I wanted to share with you about the fifth training. And I know that I'm not going to get that far, actually. Um, I sort of feel like stopping here, but I'll go a little longer just to start the third one. Um, The third one is about sexual misconduct or uh, respecting each other's solitude or boundaries might be a good way of saying it. And And the Buddha was really, he had a lot to say about this. Um, And I'm not going to have time to, it's not necessary, I'm not going to have time to share it all with you tonight. But I think the most important part is not using our sexuality to hurt anybody or ourselves. And here in retreat, we're protected from that by our... I promise not to interact with each other sexually. But I also think of it as not making an object of another person, an object that we could use for our own pleasure or just discard or or manipulate or exploit in any way um, or any of the unhealthy things that sometimes happen. And they happen to some of us more than others of us, as Pascal's story about the waterfall told us last night. Um, But to be as conscious as as possible, always and especially in this area. And I just just will say that he, that the Buddha, uh, he really understood that sexuality was a very powerful force in us, a very powerful human urge. And he said, He remarked that both men and women would find no better sight, no better sight, sound, smell, or touch than that of one to whom they are sexually attracted. Um, That's a pretty intense statement. and, And because the human urge for this kind of connection is so predominant, um, he offered extra assistance and guidance for us to manage our uh, sexual desire. And he, I'm just going to list the things that he classified as sexual misconduct because they're not so relevant here in retreat, but it's just good to know how he felt. And he, the list was um, unfaithfulness, And his understanding of commitment in relationship is that it needed to be mutual. Um, A wife should not disregard a husband who displays enthusiasm for her, strives uh, to provide for her needs, and always takes care of her. He said that. And vice versa. A wife should not disregard such a dutiful husband, nor vice versa. Um, and 
he didn't mean that if your partner disregards you, you should go find extramarital entertainments. He meant that um, you could actually find a new dutiful partner um, if yours neglects their duties. And that's interesting too. I didn't know the Buddha felt that way. Uh, So unfaithfulness, seduction, forced sex, incest, sexual abuse of minors. And he thought that that was so bad uh, that he said that people who um, abuse sexually immature people are lower than dogs. Now, in in his realm, in his context, dogs are very, very low. They were not as elevated as they are in our lives. And so he mentioned that even, even animals do not mate with sexually immature um, partners. They don't initiate um, sex with... Yeah. They, so he's saying anybody who abuses children violates an ethical code that even animals respect. And then he talked about overindulgence in sex and what that means. And uh, and this bhikkhu who kind of scoured the sutras for all this information, found nothing about premarital sex or homosexuality uh, at all, no information in the teachings, um, And he said, but if you look at the criteria that the Buddha spoke of elsewhere, one of the greatest concepts in the Buddha's teachings is uh, individual freedom of choice. And so he says, a harmless, that is one where no harm is taking place, substitution for the traditional male-female sexual relationship would not contradict the Buddha's criteria evaluating an action um, that we can extrapolate from his tolerance um, and his support of wise choice um, we can extrapolate respect he felt that it was important that the inevitable search for sensual pleasure that, and this is all talking about lay people, of course, that uh, what was important is that it not be a burden to oneself or to others. And um, so, of course, he exhorts us to behave with wisdom and compassion, to view and treat each other and respect each other's rights. And uh, I think... I just am at a choice point here, so I need to take a moment. So I think just I'm going to summarize this part to say that um, 
how we work with sexual fantasies and the tendency of the mind to create very enticing stories um, is like we, the way we work with all stories, to come back to the body and to feel the energy in the body. And in this case, it means feeling the energy, the warmth, the aliveness of this particular kind of energy. And can it be felt as an energy of aliveness itself, of just awakening to this kind of movement of life in the form of sexual energy? And and people find that they really can do this and they don't need to make an object of this powerful energy or of anybody else or try to shut it down and suppress it but to simply be with this movement of life in this form, lucid and clear. And when we can be with it with the ease of an open heart to be at ease in our skin, in our bodies, and in our hearts, to feel empathy and caring, and the motivation to do this because of the untold suffering generated by derailed human sexuality, um, we attune in a very sensitive, gentle way that we can catch the Uh, the wind in the sails of loving awareness and just feel the changes and sense sense the movement of energy. So I'm going to actually close with a poem that has to do with this. And a saying of the Buddha who said, the wise hold on to nothing as theirs and reject nothing as not. And the poem is from Kabir. And he says, don't go outside your house to see the flowers, my friend, don't bother with that excursion. Inside your own body, there are flowers. One has a thousand petals. Won't that do for a place to sit? Sitting there, you'll have a glimpse of reality. Inside the body and out. A garden in a garden. So with all of these trainings, we're offering our heartfelt respect for the power and magic of this endless dimension, universal life itself, mating and birthing and coming into being, arising and and dissolving, as some of you did this afternoon, arising and dissolving, endless dimension life. So let's sit together for a moment and feel our aliveness.
So thank you, everybody, for your kind attention. Um, where I come from in Los Angeles, we have no shame about having a third sequel. So um, to be continued. And thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.